At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. I'm your host, Mike Bowden, just on the head of Intermodal Solutions here at FreightWaves, which is the largest uh, media and data company that's focused on freight transportation. If you're wondering where uh, Joanna Marsh is, uh, she's out this week, I think uh, maybe dealing with some combination of a, house, a tree falling on her house and other uh, sort of personal issues. But uh, I think you're in good hands. Um, we'll go through uh, some of what's on the, the FreightWaves.com website related to railroad industry. And then I'll take you through a few uh, charts from FreightWaves uh, Sonar. And also just want to uh, point out uh, right at the top, uh, in a couple of weeks, we just booked a good guest for uh, Thursday, July 13th. It's going to be Chuck uh, Baker, who is head of the uh, uh, Shortline Rail Association. So we'll really dig into the issues of impacting the short line. So I hope you, people can uh, join us uh, for that. Um, so with that, I'll get into uh, taking you a little bit of a tour around the FreightWaves.com website uh, for those articles that are related to uh, the railroad industry. We do publish about 40 or 50 articles a day. It's almost uh, humanly impossible to absorb all the information that's on FreightWaves.com between the videos and the articles, um, but uh, it's, it's sort of a curated look. We'll take a look at a few railroad articles. I want to bring up this first one, which was a piece written by um, my colleague Noy Mahoney. Who I just saw the other day at our uh, conference in Cleveland. And uh, Noy is writing about uh, railroads uh, moving to create more access between Mexico, Texas, and the U.S. Southeast. And he's talking about a partnership um, that has been proposed between Canadian Pacific, uh, uh, Kansas City, uh, the newly merged uh, railroad there, and with CSX to create an interchange in Alabama. You see a picture of a of a rail yard, um, intermodal rail yard. And so what's basically been proposed is um, a plan between those two railroads where they're going to leverage um, a connection by a short line railroad that is in, um, it sort of connects Mississippi and uh, Alabama, have a chart, uh, a, a, a map to that effect. And so if you can see the sort of the white lines, I guess it doesn't stand out too much. That's a uh, part of the, the, the CPKC now, you know, the part that was the formerly the Kansas City Southern, those, those white lines, you know, largely the north-south uh, corridor although it does go east-west through Mississippi. And then you look at the yellow lines. The yellow lines are CSX's network. And uh, if you can see the graphic uh, close enough, you see there's a gap uh, in between those uh, those two networks. Um, I believe that's along I-20, essentially, between Meridian, Mississippi, and Montgomery. There's a lack of a connection there. And so the idea with this partnership is that they're going to leverage uh, the, op the, the operations of a shortline railroad that goes 168 miles called the Meridian and Big B Railroad. That's one of the many short lines that's owned by uh, Genesee and Wyoming. And the idea is that it's going to give CSX a new option to uh, take traffic in and out of Mexico uh, while also supporting 
its business in the U.S. Southeast, uh, you know, one of the faster growing portions of uh, the, the U.S. Uh, economy. Um, there's a quote from Keith Creel in that article, who's the, the CEO of uh, CPKC. And he sort of calls out that this is going to be, um, in fact, intermodal uh, segment and automotive, among other customer segments. It does seem like intermodal and automotive are going to be the two revenue segments that are uh, potentially be the most positively impacted um, in terms of, of railroad traffic by the CPKC uh, you know, merger. And uh, it's really worth noting, and, and, and Noy brings it up in his article, that this is kind of, kind of one of many uh, plans that have been put into place to either grow the um, intermodal volume or expand services. Uh, an article we wrote about the other day was um, CPKC taking delivery of 1,000 uh, 53-foot reefer containers uh, with the idea that's going to um, contribute to cross-border Mexican freight. Uh, that's really sort of a show of confidence in service. They have those refrigerated containers. It's been, it's been something that's been you know, difficult for some other companies. We did see that the Tiger Cool Express uh, go out of business a week or two ago. And then in, back in April, the CPKC announced agreements with um, Schneider National and uh, Swift, uh, Nice Swift, so two of the big uh, domestic uh, truckload-based companies that also do um, are heavy into intermodal using the company's Mexico Midwest Express um, daily premium uh, intermodal service. And then we've also seen announcements from you know Canadian National Railway to expand its intermodal service. They've announced partnership with Union Pacific um, and Ferramax for transcontinental intermodal service. So a lot going on between uh, the U.S. and Mexico border. Um, it really shows that the carriers are expecting those to be growth areas. Um, in addition to the expectation that the Port of Houston is going to continue to be a growth area, we've seen new services rolled out in recent weeks from both Union Pacific and the BNSF uh, for new origin destination pairs from containers coming out of Houston to points westward, uh, such as Salt Lake City, Denver, Fort Worth, et cetera. Uh, and, and those should be, um, uh, you know, contribute to maybe a, an improved balance in the, the, the intermodal networks of uh, those those rail lines. So there are, there's a lot that we're reporting about Um uh, as far as intermodal service uh, goes and additional uh, railroad service. Uh, so keep um, stay tuned to Freight Waves for that. I'll go on to the next uh, article I want to discuss here, which is the Surface Transportation Board. Uh, we know the STB is the um, executive organization that uh, re economically regulates the railroads in, in Washington, D.C., in, in lieu of the fact that it's not um, overseen by the Department of Justice. And this is an article written by uh, my colleague Joanna Marsh and uh, Joanna is describing this uh, STB order for BNSF Railway to send more coal trains to the Montana mines. Um, and so, essentially, what happened here is there is a big, uh, you know, coal company that's moving coal out of Wyoming to for you know for the export markets. It's going from Wyoming to um, Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, and essentially they said that they weren't able to get um, the, that coal to market. Uh, because the the railroads were violating their uh, common carrier obligation by not providing uh, what it considered to be an adequate uh, level of uh, service um, offering, and so you know now here we have the Surface Transportation Board ordering uh, the BNSF Railway to send more of this coal um, in an expedited manner. The, the name of the coal company is Navajo Transitional Energy Company. Um, so it couldn't get its its, its coal its coal to the ports. Um, and what's interesting about this is, you know, really before last year, there really had not been a lot of these emergency orders 
that had been issued that had been imposed on the railroad. I mean, last year we had a Union Pacific uh, being ordered to move um, uh, animal feed for foster farms as we had that issue. This is uh, really in a lot of ways a similar issue here uh, with with coal. And it does sort of get to the point of, well, what um, is the actually a common carrier obligation? I mean, it, essentially what it says is that the railroads have to provide reasonable service to any shipper that wants to, um, you know, take advantage of that service. It was what the the railroads um, agreed to in exchange for owning all of that land that was gifted to them by the, the, the government. But the question is, you know, what is reasonable? Um, and we certainly have differing difference of opinions on what is reasonable. The BNSF says that, you know, an emergency order should only be used for true emergencies. And in this case, getting colds from uh, this shipper offices mine to port was was not an emergency. I'm sure it felt like an emergency to that coal company. Um, and uh, BNSF says, well, the common carrier obligation uh, you know, does allow for some uh, discrepancy in absolute service levels and can, that obligation can be met a few different ways. So it does seem like um, you know, the STB should maybe go back and reevaluate, maybe put a definition on uh, what is uh, you know, the common carrier application. I know that's something that uh, the Surface Transportation Board has uh, been considering as uh, you know one of the many things that they're taking a look at. Um, and, and so some of the other details here, um, BNSF is going to have to transport 4.2 million tons uh, of coal to this, uh, this, this shipping facility in British Columbia, an additional 1 million tons of coal as train crews and train sets become available later this year that translates to about 23 trains uh, per month it's also worth pointing out that this was a split decision and so of the five um, members the three members um, that you would think of being is, is a little bit more aligned with the democratic party or um, shippers interests uh, voted to uh, in, in favor of the, the coal shipper and then the two dissenters were uh, patrick fuchs and uh, michelle schultz and um, you know they had concerns about well is this going to um, is, is this the, sort of the right precedent to to set? Uh, you can go back in the article and uh, you know see some of the detail, or you can just go to the source material, which is a uh, you know fairly reasonable, I think uh, about forty page uh, document, reasonable in terms of length for a, a government document, um, at least that's on the, the STB uh, website. I'll move on to the third uh, article I want to talk about today, and this is one that uh, you know Cowan, um, you know brokerage firm, thinks that reciprocal switching could hit uh, railroad stocks. Uh, this is another article that uh, Joanna Marsh uh, wrote up, um, sort, sort of one of the uh, research reports that that hit her desk that uh, sort of caught her attention. Uh, Jason Seidel of Cowan, um, you know, talking um, about uh, his expectations after interviewing. Uh, Marty Oberman, um, the chairman of the U.S. Surface Transportation Board, and uh, that agency says, you know, expects to make a decision on approved uh, on approving the reciprocal switching sometime later this year, and so that could potentially be a really big, you know, deal. That reciprocal switching um, is a way to enhance, you know, competition on the railroad networks. Uh, the, the shippers say, well, that would really sort of keep railroads honest in terms of quoting uh, competing. Um, you know, rates and uh, you really enhance competition in, a, in an industry where there's not uh, sufficient competition. The railroads would say um, that it would not that that it would impair their ability to invest in the network. The in, impair the incentive to invest in the network if they're just going to have if a, if a competitor is just going to quote uh, a rate over their 
uh, track. And so, um, you know, in that report, uh, you know, Jason Seidel goes on to uh, describe that the headline risk that would lead to multiple contraction uh, in, in terms of the stock price going down. So not necessarily the, having a hit to the earnings or cash flow right away, but uh, how much Wall Street is willing to pay for uh, $1 of earnings. So we'd expect those, those, those price to earnings multiples to uh, c- compress, which I think that makes sense. Um, he says it would maybe start to hit financials in about 2025. And you do wonder, is it going to be a, a situation where you, you see a lot of um, freight moving from one railroad to another, or is it just going to be that you know the threat of having this reciprocal switching as an option for shippers is going to be something that keeps the railroads more honest in terms of quoting uh, rates. But in any event, I mean, this is something that we've heard you know time and time again. We've had a number of uh, railroad shipping groups uh, come on this show and other freight wave shows, and that's what we hear is, is sort of the one thing on their wish list that they would like to see is they would like to see the Surface Transportation Board. Go approve the reciprocal switching uh, requirement in uh, the the railroad um, industry. Uh, so that's something that you know I think could potentially be the biggest uh, railroad event of uh, twenty twenty three. Um, yeah, a couple other bullet points here is uh, Jason Seidel of Cowan estimates it could be a five to ten percent average impact on rail pricing for approximately one third of car loads on CSX and Norfolk Southern says it's maybe a greater impact for CSX and Norfolk Southern because there's more overlap between the networks. Um, thinks there's about one third overlap between CSX and Norfolk Southern and maybe about one fifth overlap between um, BNSF and Union Pacific, uh, you know, out West, uh, you know, some of the industries where it could be more heavily impacted you would think would be the ones that are just really not modally competitive. So you think about things like um, you know, big uh, chemical companies that really have no option but to use the the, the railroad or um, you know agriculture companies, coal companies. I think the big bulk commodities are going to be ones that are most likely to be to be impacted. Um, uh, Seidel of Cowan also says he doesn't think the Railway Safety Act is going to have a major impact on the railroads. He thinks that additional CapEx spent for things like hot box detectors is going to be pretty negligible when you sort of think, put that in the context of the multi-billion dollar um, capital envelope that the the, the railroads uh, each have. So I uh, wanted to highlight those things. I thought that was a good uh, report, um, uh, both by by Jason and then a, a summary that uh, you know, Joanna uh, put together. So with about uh, the last 10 minutes here, I'm going to go through a few different charts in uh, FreightWage Sonar. And if there's sort of one headline here, I'd say that sonar data suggests that plenty of intermodal capacity remains. And uh, I think that's particularly true on the domestic intermodal side. Um, you know, we heard in middle of April, some of the domestic intermodal companies uh, like J.B. Hunt came out and said, well, there's about 15% excess capacity. And um, what we're looking at here is our O-Rail data. Uh, which is uh, containerized intermodal data. And we're going to limit that uh, data set to only 53-foot containers that are loaded. And so we're, we're, we're strictly looking at the domestic intermodal um, side of the business here. So that's the side of the business that J.B. Hunt, Hub Group, Schneider, um, Knight Swift, uh, all, com- all compete in. And you see the white line is 2023. And you see the horizontal lines. What I'm doing there is taking an average of the first quarter and then take another average of the second quarter. And it's only up about 1% from the first quarter to the second quarter, which, um, you know, a little bit less than what you might might expect to see, uh, you know, seasonally. And when you put that on a year-over-year basis, domestic intermodal volume down about 5.5% uh, in the second quarter year-over-year. So um, if I was a stock analyst, if I was, if I was still a stock analyst, 
uh, like I used to be, and I was following, you know, JB Hunter Hub Group. That's kind of my bogey. Is I'm thinking, you know, I would have my model pretty close to down 5.5 percent in terms of volume uh, for the second quarter, uh, which is is not as uh, severe of a of a decline as what you're seeing in that weekly AAR data from the Association of, of, of American Railroads that comes out every Wednesday. And the difference is that AAR data conflates domestic and international, whereas um, those companies like uh, J.B. Hunt Hub Group, Schneider, they're, they compete in that domestic uh, segment. So domestic segment holding up a little bit better, uh, but still, if it's only up 1% from the first quarter to the second quarter, and we knew there was about 15% excess capacity in the first quarter, there's still plenty of excess capacity in uh, domestic intermodal uh, business in uh, the second quarter. Um, I think the good news is that rail service is improving. Uh, there's some shippers that we talk to on a regular basis that are um, uh, customers of the data side of the house. And uh, we heard from a major CPG company the other day is that uh, they're using more intermodal, um, where they, whereas they were using truckload the past couple quarters. And their reason for that was that intermodal service has improved to sort of that critical level uh, where they can, again, use intermodal and not be too concerned about having those products on uh, shelves. There was also an interesting comment from J.B. Hunt the other day at an investor conference where they said that the Eastern railroads, CSX Norfolk Southern, the, those railroads, they've seen an, a significant improvement in uh, service. And they've said on the, on the Western side, you know, they use BNSF um, strictly. And they said that, you know, they're, Service has improved, but it's really not yet at uh, targeted levels. I'll turn over to international uh, segment uh, with this next sonar chart. And that one is showing a, a more severe decline on a year-over-year basis. That's down 10.4% on a year-over-year basis, but it's up more than domestic intermodal on a sequential basis from the first quarter to the second quarter. Uh, from the first quarter to the second quarter, inter international intermodal up uh, 6% um, you know, quarter over quarter. And that's really um, due to seasonality. So I do have those horizontal lines showing um, the, the increase uh, in the first from the first quarter to the second quarter in 2023 in white, in uh, from 2022 in, in yellow, and then in 2021 in green. And you always sort of see that sequential increase. Uh, international intermodal is more impacted than domestic intermodal is by the the, the um, Chinese uh, New Year, which takes place uh, usually in February has a bigger impact on the international side of, of, of things. And so it's, it does sort of reflect what's happening in the, the import market. Uh, vol import volume is still down significantly year over year um, in, the, in the West Coast, but rising from earlier this year uh, for a few different factors. One of those is just sort of typical seasonality. Another is the, the water issues on the, um, on the Panama Canal. Another issue is sort of finally getting through some of the negotiations, and I think um, shippers are starting to get a little bit more confident that we're not going to have a labor situation on the West Coast ports, at least and that, that agreement needs to be ratified um, by the port workers, but um, it seems to be uh, on, on the right track there. You are seeing less uh, transloading from international containers into domestic containers uh, because there's a greater availability of international containers, and so the container ship um, lines, those ocean carriers, are more willing to send containers all the way from LA to points inland like Chicago, Dallas, um, Atlanta, et cetera. So um, seeing a little bit more improvement on international um, on a sequential basis. I'll walk through a couple more here. Uh, we have a chart on intermodal uh, spot rates that um, and not a lot is happening in, the, in, the, in this chart, but I do think there's um, a, sort of information in this data. And so 
what this shows is this is a, an average of about 100 lanes that we have intermodal uh, spot rates for. And when there's any type of tightness in a particular lane, what you'll see is the class one railroads increase the spot rates in order to protect capacity for the big contracted shippers. And as you can see, 2023, that white line has just sort of been on a downward slope and really it's been sort of going down um, ever since the middle part of uh, last year, 2022 in blue. I think it gave us an early indicator last year that there was not going to be a true intermodal peak season last fall like you saw the previous two years. And uh, no reason to think there's um, going to be any capacity tightness um, later in the uh, you know this year either uh, with volumes where they are and with some of the domestic intermodal companies taking delivery of uh, incremental containers earlier this year. And so if I'm a shipper and I look at that, um, you know, my thought process is, well, the railroads are not concerned about securing capacity for the contracted shipper. If I'm a contracted contractual shipper, you know, I shouldn't be too concerned uh, either. Um, I'll move on to the next uh, chart, which is really the last one I want to talk about here, which is intermodal contract rates. And uh, this is from a company that um, you know, processes uh, transactions. And these rates exclude uh, fuel surcharges. So it eliminates that sort of pocket of, of volatility that we've seen um, in really the past few years. And what this shows, sort of taking a step back to 2020 uh, in, in orange, markets started to tighten up um, in the middle part of, of, of 2020 for intermodal. So it moved uh, after uh, these markets moved for truckload. And uh, you know, really what happens in intermodal is contract rates tend to respond to whether or not there was a significant uh, peak season the prior fall. In 2020, there was. And so that led to double-digit rate increases in 2021 from 2020. And then again, a similar thing happened in 2022. And so you basically had two consecutive years of double-digit um, intermodal contract rate increases from 2020 to 2021 and then from 2022. And now, now into 2023, after um, sort of a lack of a peak season last fall, those rates have, have come down. And you see from that chart, they're sort of in line with 2021 levels. I would say that um, that degree of change is probably going to be a little bit more severe than what we're going to hear from the likes of J.B. Hunt, Hub Group Schneider when they report earnings um, in a couple of weeks and in, in two to three weeks. And the reason for that is I think most of the lanes that go into this data set are the ones that are very highly competitive uh, between the truckload and intermodal uh, you know, segments. And so it get the sense that there's a lot of um, you know, auto parts in this data set, a lot of parts moving between, let's say, Chicago and Atlanta, just very competitive between a truckload and intermodal. It was interesting, um, you know, comment um, by JB Hunt at investor conference recently, where they said, "Well, some of their contracts have not yet rolled over uh, for this new um, environment of softer intermodal rates, and so investors should expect another step down in terms of intermodal rates um, in the third quarter from the second quarter, and would uh, suggest that um, you know the data is telling us the the, the same thing there." So. Probably not um, something that's unexpected, but I would expect more uh, pricing pressure um, in intermodal uh, for the remainder of this year, uh, given the excess capacity, um, you know, really across modes right now in um, in, in the freight space. Uh, we'll see how long this lasts. Um, I think uh, you know usually you get into an election year next year, and um, it tends to be a little bit stronger economically. Maybe some government spending to. Um, you know, make the politicians in power look a little bit better. Um, so, so maybe um, 2024 will be a better year for the for the freight markets. I think a lot of our viewership would appreciate that. 
Um, so last thing I'll mention here again is uh, join us July 13th. We'll have Chuck Baker on, who's the president of the American uh, Short Line and Regional Railroad Association. Um, and so uh, you know, really think that'll uh, augment what we've talked about here in recent um, episodes of um, People Speaking Rail, where we've talked to organizations that represent the carriers. We've talked to some organizations that represent shippers. We've talked to some third parties that do you know, data and, and, and things that, that are essentially suppliers. Uh, to the railroad industry, but it'll be great to get the um, the short line railroads perspective. I mean, some of the things I want to know about is um, sort of how they um, would expect uh, things like reciprocal switching um, in a streamlined uh, a process to contest contest rate cases. How would that impact um, the the short line railroads? You know, how does the weak uh, truckload market impact short line railroads? I think there's a lot to go over there. Um, so, I hope you can join us for that. And for if you want to be stay tuned to um, all the railroad news, uh, one of the very many um, newsletters that we have, uh, we have a railroad newsletter, uh, which if you just want the railroad news, you can go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash subscribe. And you can go under classics, uh, which is essentially for the original newsletters. And you can click on the rail or you can subscribe uh, to all 20 of them. Uh, and uh, that's really what I, what I wanted to go over today. Hope everyone has a, a great day.